Yeah. There's one joke. You can see it on YouTube, YouTube. or Twitter. Yeah. It's like a 30-second clip. Just watch that. We don't even have to be specific about it. You could just type in the one funny joke from Space Jam 2, and it'll take you directly there. Cause it is- I, I guarantee you're actually probably right. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. With me again, Keith Foster from San Diego, California. And with me, as always, is Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Okay. And today we are going to be talking <laughs> about, I guess we're, we're trying really hard not to talk about Space Jam, A New Legacy. Yeah, can we, uh, just, can we just keep stalling? <laughs> And at the end of the podcast, because I was desperate to talk about a movie made for grownups, we are going to uh, be reviewing uh, Killing of the Sacred Deer that is streaming on Netflix right now. It came out in 2017. Um, Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We got a lot to talk about. But before we get into (laughs) that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Before we get into that. I may or may not be a little bit mad at you about that one, but uh, we'll get into it later. Okay. Uh, before we get into that, I want want to uh, discuss a debate that was started online between you and me about. Oh, I know. Okay, I know what this is about. Yeah, yeah, we're this gonna get into it. So you posted on Twitter about a week ago or so mm-hmm. a little Twitter poll asking people what what was. It? Either better or no, worse. Okay. Let how me, do, how let, is it worded? Let me, yeah, let me just pull up the tweet. Also, I don't like your condescension that it's a little Twitter poll. It's it's out on Twitter. Anyone can engage, engage with it. Mm-hmm. It's as big or as little as, as my audience wants it to be. Uh, sure. Okay, I might have to go back a little bit because it was... I said, what do you think is harder to pull off? Mm. And I was very intentional on my wording there. Um, what do you think is harder to pull off, a comedy movie sequel or a horror movie sequel? And overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. 100%, everybody said comedy movie sequel is harder to pull off. Yes. Uh, and then I tweeted something. I tweeted, uh, apparently, I okay, I did tweet something that was a little dismissive of horror movie sequels. I'll <laughs> admit that. I was... I was being a little controversial. Sure. Um, so I guess my point is I didn't expect it to be a total blowout. I figured, right. you know, I, I figured horror movie sequel would win as being less difficult to pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I didn't expect it to be like total shutout for comedy movie sequel. And my reasoning is this. It's not that. Everybody's responses were basically like, there's way more better horror movie sequels than there are comedy movie sequels. Yes. Which I do agree with. Uh, I do think, you know, I think part of that is because, in general, a horror movie sequel is more likely to get greenlit than a comedy sequel. You don't see as many comedy sequels. Um, So I do think if we're averaging numbers... Horror has an advantage there. 
I also said, what do you think is harder to pull off? And what I mean by that is horror movie sequels tend to be either really, really good and like surpass the original or really fucking bad. There's no middle ground with horror sequels, it seems to me. Uh, whereas comedy movie sequels... I, I would think argue that, but... Well, okay, we can get into that in a second. <laughs> I haven't opened the floor for debate yet. Whereas comedy movie sequels, there's a bunch of them that are pretty meh, right? There's not a lot of great ones. There's a few. I mentioned them on Twitter. Uh, I think there's a few really good comedy movie sequels. And there's a bunch of meh ones. But I, I think comedy movie sequels, when they fail, don't tend to fail as hard. I think they tend to just be like, well, that was pointless. And this Whereas, is where we sharply disagree. Well, I think horror movie sequels tend to be, unless they're really good, they tend to be really fucking bad. Here's my thing. Here's my thing. I would much rather watch a bad horror sequel than a bad comedy sequel. Because at least with a well, that's bad a, that, horror sequel, okay. you can enjoy it on a camp level. You can kind of put the whole Sometimes. thing. You Some, can kind of not, put the not all the time. So okay, more I'm, often. I'm gonna I'm more gonna often you, than not. Oh, all right, we're getting we're getting into twenty four hour uh, network news category here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it. Uh, more often than not, I think you can put the whole thing in, in quotation marks and, you know, you, you can watch Hellraiser 57 or whatever they're up to now and it's all bullshit and they've done the same things over and over again. They're just treading water at this point, but at least so, you get some gore, you get some kills, so that's you what get some weird mythology, you get some like bad acting that's funny, whatever. That's what that's you get out of a what, bad horror sequel. I'm not a, done. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but with a bad comedy sequel, there's nothing worse, period, than a bad comedy. They're the yeah, le- I, that's the least enjoyable type of film to watch is a bad comedy. I generally agree with you because, because it's it, it, becomes it sucks the, the fun out of itself. Fun. Yes. It just it it becomes like an exercise in futility to even see the point of enjoyment in it and i think on the average yes there's there are some horror um sequels that are not fun because they're just kind of boring or because they take themselves too seriously or whatever i think that happens more than you are accounting for I well, think I'm going I think by that is logic. the majority of horror movie sequels. I think we remember no. the great ones, we remember the bad ones, but I think a lot of them tend to be middling and boring and just pretty I blah. think I'd still rather watch a middling boring horror sequel. But again, it's not it's not than a middling you, bad The question was what's sequel. harder to watch? The question is what do you think is harder to pull off? Still. And the reason I... And here's the thing. I don't even completely disagree. I generally probably think that, yes, a comedy sequel is harder to pull off. Because I think in some ways, comedy is harder to pull off than yes. horror. Uh, no. Well, mm, okay. but that that I mean, But here's the thing. Comedy and horror are... They are bedfellows. They, sure. They, uh, they all... They both depend on uh, audience anticipation. Timing, and, subversion... Yeah. yeah, and uh, all, all that stuff. So they, they, yes, they're playing the same rhythm, just in a different key most of the time. Uh, 
Uh, and in general, I, I don't know. I have a weird relationship with horror. We've, we've talked about this before. Uh, what, what spurred this tweet, what instigated it was I was watching Sinister 2 and it's, I was just like, God, this is so blah. And while I, it was so Mm -hmm. blah that while I was watching it, I couldn't even think of a good horror sequel. I was like, God, why are horror sequels always this bad? Why are they always, why do they always do this? Why do they always, uh, you know, it's in, in, yeah, I was definitely thinking in generalities. Um, there does seem to be a tendency to like come back with different writers, different directors, different cast and crew. They usually kill off the characters that you like very early on and stuff. And now, and in my head, I was just like, why do we do this? Why do we do horror movie sequels? Uh, so in short, I was not a fan of Sinister 2. Um, I don't think anybody was. And I don't think any like rational person would use that as their litmus test. No. And, and, and people brought up a lot of great examples of great <laughs> horror movie sequels that I, you know, right. that I'm like, yeah, sure. But I, I think that, I guess what I'm saying is I think that we tend to discount comedy sequels, I guess is my ultimate statement. But there's more. Here's the thing. I think if realize. you were to, if you're to like approach, you know, man on the street style, what's his name? Timon. In uh, New York City. Billy on the street. Billy on the street. (laughs) Um, I I mean, you say Timon. I think of Nathan Lane. Right. uh, I do too. But unfortunately, that was the only thing I could think of. And it worked. Um, A la Billy Eichner on the street. If you were to uh, just approach a rando, you know, non-cineast, whatever, and ask them like... Is that a term? Yes. You know, cinephile, whatever. Oh, okay. you I mean, pro- I don't like cinephile because that makes it sound like you want to fuck a movie reel. <laughs> a pedestrian, <laughs> whatever. And you ask them, you know, name five horror sequels. And then they they would probably, you know, give you that, that, but, the great. Okay, that's bias. Right. That That's bias. They're, that's why I'm saying we remember the good ones. We yes. remember the good ones and we remember the bad ones. And I'm right. saying there's a lot more middling shit than or you realize. Or just the successful ones. Yes. Because you don't either need to be good or memorable to be successful. Like That's... in the case of like the 1200 Saw sequels. Exactly. Um, exactly. And they tend to franchise the fuck out of them. And mm-hmm. I my, I guess the only point I was trying to say is the numbers favor horror because more horror sequels get made. There aren't a lot of comedy sequels. There's a few. I mean, they do happen and... That you know, they they do have the examples of like the American Pies, which are kind of the I guess the comedy equivalent of the Saw sequels, where there's eight hundred and it's like, God, are they still making these? And then they're direct to DVD or whatever. Yeah, it, or your police academies and but it it just doesn't seem to happen as often with comedy. So I guess my point is, I don't know. I don't know what my point is. My point is. Like I said, if you if you ask a person like name five horror comedies or horror horror sequels that may be horror comedy, they're going to name five acceptable movies, probably, or at least well regarded movies. Um, and then if you ask somebody five like comedy sequels, 
it's going to be probably something they only remember because they didn't like it. Like, if you ask me personally, when I when I think comedy sequel, I don't think of... I struggle to even think of, like, the best ones. But, but first of all... I, I always think of stuff like Grown Ups 2 or... You know, sure, but I can give you a parallel to that in, in a horror movie form. Like, it's not that Grown Ups was great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 here's the thing. I don't even disagree with you because I had to struggle to think of good comedy sequels. But then when I did, I'm like, there's more out there than I think people give it, give it credit for. So I think, I guess what I'm saying is I think there tends to be a bias and 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 your example kind of proves that like and i'm saying i i have it too i just i think numbers favor horror movie sequels and i think we should i guess we should make more comedy sequels is my point i don't I, know no, i think we should definitely make less um <laughs> here's here's why i think generally and to go back to your original question why it's easier to pull off a horror sequel than it is a comedy sequel um not just because you know the difficulty of writing them or conceiving them or whatever. Mm. But with a horror film, just as a genre, um, and anything that's kind of dependent on world building, so whether it's horror, sci-fi, fantasy, whatever, um, even action movies to a certain extent, uh, mm-hmm. you have your tropes and your genre trappings that you can kind of keep everything in line. You can lean on things, you know, like the kill counts, like you know, creative costuming or gore effects or, you know, music stings and score and all of that kind of stuff you can kind of use to keep everything sort of at least at the very least functioning. Whereas with the comedy, you have a lot less of those things. You're, you're basically, I mean, there's comedy tropes, but see, that's where not, I disagree. That's where I disagree. They're not you. so I- architectural as, as it is with, genre films that's where i disagree with you i because i think uh you're a lot more just kind of like thrown into the deep end of the pool and either sink or you swim and i think more often than not you sink here's the thing i think it's bullshit to discount genre comedies i think it is absolute bullshit to discount like like gremlins 2 Mm -hmm. is a comedy before it is a a horror movie or a creature feature right it is silly as hell it is really weird I, I think that it's it's bullshit to say that just because something crosses genres, like your example of Bill and Ted, uh, you know, as a sci-fi, like, I think it's a great example of a successful comedy sequel. Yes. And, and you're right. It is because they can play with those genre trappings and, and that, you know, they found different ways to take it than they took the original movie. And, and that's, you know, I think a part of why it's, it is so fucking crazy they go even further than the first one back same with back fu- to the future yeah i i know, think it's these type of I, things i don't think it's fair to discount those as comedy movies uh uh just because they're also genre i don't features. discount like, them as comedy movies but i do discount them as successes in comedy sequel why that because, doesn't make sense because because they, they can play with genre trappings but that's Fine. Yes. If it's a comedy that can do that, it's still a successful comedy sequel. Okay, fine. So let's say you're but, wait, let's say you're is, making a sequel to what? What was a kind of recent comedy hit? Uh, there haven't been a lot. I know. Uh, 
I mean, it's hard because now everything's Marvel nowadays, <laughs> and and movies haven't come out for a year and a half. So right. Um, so I don't know. Booksmart. Whatever. Okay, sure, sure. You're yeah, making Booksmart. a sequel to Booksmart. Now, like, the obvious route to go is, what are they doing now that they're in college? You know, do they reunite during the summer, and now they have different lives, blah, blah, blah. Though That's the way, like, I would think about approaching a sequel to it. But if you're doing that, you still, basically, it comes down to the character arcs and their relationships. Sure. And that has to pay off. And it has to pay off in a similar enough way to the first one that no, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be similar. And and here's the thing: similar enough. I'm not saying like I'm not I, saying we I have will to like follow the you. exact same plot, which is a I problem mean, a lot of comedy sequels have. The, the well, I think a problem that both horror and comedy sequels have is most of the time when they get greenlit, it's because mm-hmm. the first one was like an unprecedented success, right? And there, and then all of a sudden the studio sees dollar signs on it and they're like, okay, well, let's make Fist Fight 2. Um, right. Or Horrible Bosses 2 or whatever. Or Anchorman right? 2 or Dumb and Dumber-er. Sure. Or and, and it's it's not inspired. But it, so it's not inspired by any kind of creative decision. It's inspired by the cynical movie making process. And so I think writers tend to go into those projects with kind of a lazy mentality and they're very cut and paste. That doesn't mean that inherently a comedy sequel is harder to pull off or, or, you know, necessarily worse. I think it's just, I think it comes down to why these movies get greenlit, how they get greenlit, how they get produced. And, And you're talking about genre trappings that was a lot of my big problems with Sinister 2 was it was like it hung solely off of the trappings of the first one. It was so boring and predictable and poorly done that it was like not fun. It was just like uh, it, it was the horrible bosses too of horror movies. I was like, what the fuck am I watching this for? Right. And actually so I, in I, that I, case, I was very disappointed because I thought what the first one introduced – is something we hadn't had in a long time at that point, and we probably still don't, um, which is like a fun horror villain. Like, we haven't had a Freddy in a while, or we haven't had a, sure, yeah. you know, a Jason or something you can make a toy out of. And I thought there was a potential in Bagul to do, like, you know, seven Bagul movies and just get weirder and weirder in the lore. Oh, but, um, but here's the thing. In I want to make Sinister 3. They do get weirder and weirder in the lore, but not in good, fun ways. It's I guess like, you could say Baba Duke is maybe in that. Uh, they could be. do stuff um, with that if they wanted to. I, I mean, I think they kind of have done that with the with the Conjuring universe, like with Annabelle and the Nun yeah. and stuff. Like, the, and uh, the Crooked Man is getting his own movie, and like, there's there's some. They're getting some, more pulpy and character driven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I get. I guess. I guess my point is. You're not wrong. I don't think people are wrong with the the track record of comedy movies versus horror movies. Yeah, I do think there's more. There is a larger amount of horror movie sequels that are better than yeah. comedy movie sequels that are better. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think it is an inherent thing of comedy that makes it necessarily harder to pull off a sequel. I think I think it's the decisions that get a comedy sequel made that is is why they fail not that comedy 
you can't not that you can't follow up on comedy because comedy, can you think of a comedy sequel? But here's the thing: that's not, better than the original. Uh, Adam's Family Values. I absolutely think okay. Adam's Family is uh, Values is better than the first one. I agree. Um, and he, and here's the thing: why I think this is that comedy has the potential is because you see it all the time in serialized television form. They have to do it every fucking week, right? Um, sure. And maybe television has gotten a little less serialized than sitcoms back in the day, but it has those exact things you're talking about of, you know, character arcs that are similar enough to the week before that if somebody tuning in isn't totally lost. I just think that at the money point that comedy sequels have to get greenlit at, it's it's less likely through to make it through the studio system. Well, that's an interesting point and one that I hadn't thought of before because you're you're right in that serialized television, even if it's not like uh, you know, Seinfeld Friends Cheers style three camera sitcom, um, even if it's more alt sitcom, you know, whatever stuff that like, you see on Netflix nowadays yeah. or Hulu they still there's still comedies and they're still able to approach each episode as an individual piece and for some reason they they have a harder time doing that in movies because when i see bad comedy sequels which most of the time they're bad i always think like well you know usually with a successful comedy that becomes big enough to warrant a sequel it was kind of a zeitgeisty lightning in a bottle sure. moment and even if it's Wayne's World 2 which is like okay it's not that moment of Wayne's World. I, I mean, I agree, and I agree that I agree that Wayne's World Two isn't, and that's as one of the better as, ones. Yeah, I agree that it's not as good as the first one, but but again, that wasn't the question. I think Wayne's World Two is good enough as a sequel. Like it's it's fine, uh, but yeah, I I guess that's my point. Is my point is we're not trying hard enough with comedy sequels. They well, don't have to be bad. <laughs> They don't have to be bad, but they most more often than not are. And I still come back to my central argument, which is I will watch a bad horror movie over a bad comedy any day. That's I'll yeah. even watch a bland horror movie like a like fucking mashed potatoes with nothing in it, like something like Wes Craven's My Soul to Take, which was Drek. <laughs> but I would rather watch that than like, you know, a direct DVD, one of those like fake satire movies it, uh, if the if the que if the premise you're proposing is bad comedy is worse than bad horror i definitely agree with you yes but that was not my question and i do think people were did misunderstand it so okay. i'm glad i got to say my piece i think we've reached some sort of impasse at least understanding <laughs> uh and let's I, guess, I still think you're high as balls if you think that there's on average more successful uh, comedy sequels than horror sequels. No, no, I don't think that. I, I never said that. I never <laughs> I agree with you. There are more. But I think I think in my point was there are more horror sequels, period. You know, if it's if we're talking at bats, horror movie sequels go up at bat way more than comedy sequels do. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the there's also I, I mean, there's also we, the the argument that the 
horror tends to exist in a wider spectrum of markets than comedy does. Yeah, um, because there's a lot more be, like independence, yeah. and there's a lot more like direct to DVD stuff, and, and you know, and horrors probably horror fandom is very different than comedy fandom because a you know like a diehard gorehound will watch those shitty oh, direct to yeah. DVD things and love them as well, opposed and, to and that is absolutely you know. the all of these contribute to why more horror sequels get made. Yeah, again, I'm not I'm not well, arguing for cheaper. That. Yeah. I'm just saying I think if you put as mu- if we put as much effort into comedy sequels, I don't think I don't think there's anything about the fact that it's comedy versus a horror that makes it inherently harder to pull off. I think they're probably about the same. It's just that I think we tend to get lazy with comedy movies and and if it again, if it's getting big studio money, Big studios are going to be like, just do the same fucking thing, mm-hmm. and it's never as as funny, right? But a lot of times, like in the case of like the big ones, like in Anchorman Two or something, it is the same team. So I don't know why they can't pull it off. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that is perplexing because yeah, Anchorman Two, not good. Yeah, but but if you look at uh, you know, I think Twenty Two Jump Street is just as good as Twenty One Jump Street. Yeah, actually, that's a good example of one that does work. But and and I think in general, uh, Phil Lord and Chris, Chris Miller, Miller get it. Like yeah. this, I think the the Lego movie, the second one is is just as good as the first one. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They are they live in like a weird like parallel universe where things that shouldn't work always work for them. Like they are <laughs> the kings of the double down. Like they they'll take any bad idea and polish it to a diamond. I mean, so, and but that's what I mean. Like, if we put that kind of effort into comedy sequels all the time, I think we could get a lot more diamonds than we get. Right. Well, they're willing to take the risks, and people are willing to roll the dice on their risks, which yeah. doesn't happen enough, generally speaking. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Space Jam: A New Legacy, arguably a comedy sequel. Um. Yeah, it is. Do you want to describe it? I guess. Sure. Yes. Okay. God, this is is weird, too. There is an algorithm that exists in Warner Brothers Studios mainframe um, that is trying to prove something? Wow. I don't know. I mean, okay. Technically, you're right, but that's just a weird, that's a weird (laughs) way of getting into this whole, I would start with LeBron James. (laughs) LeBron James... World famous basketball player uh, gets kidnapped by a computer uh-huh. and forced to travel through all of Warner Brothers IP uh-huh. to end up with the Looney Tunes. Yes, uh, and and also kidnaps his son uh, and makes him play a game of basketball for the fate of all these people. It's kidnapped for reasons. Kind of, yeah. That's it, man. So that's I, this the fucking movie. If the, if there is a character arc here, um, it's the one between Le, LeBron James and his son. His son wants to be a video, a video game, game designer. Game. Um, LeBron James wants him to go more into basketball and doesn't take his computer stuff seriously. Um, so when they do both get sucked into this Warner Brothers mainframe after a pitch meeting goes wrong, um, <laughs> then uh, Don Cheadle's Al G Rhythm. Um, recruits. Someone was very proud of that. Oh my 
um, recruits uh, LeBron James' son to work against him to, uh, you know, have this... He uses his video game rules to... Uh, entrap LeBron James in in what should be an unwinnable base basketball basketball game. game. Yeah, much yeah. like uh, 1996's Space Jam, but not that much like 1996's Space Jam. Um, okay, and do they remember the original Space Jam? Because sometimes it seems like they do. Sometimes, and sometimes they, they, don't. they don't. Yeah, it's playing the thing. fast and loose with the entire thing. It's it's almost as if the 1996's Space Jam is a movie that exists in the world of this movie. So as as Harry Potter and Wonder Woman and It, whatever, all of these IPs that we run into, Casablanca, it's like they're treating the 96 film as just another IP that exists in that world, not as this is a continuation of these characters from that film. Yeah, and it's confusing, and this movie has... Even within this movie itself, there is no internal logic, and I get that it's cartoons, okay? Disclaimer. Sometimes. Disclaimer. I understand that we're talking about cartoons. I understand that we're talking about kids' movie. I understand all of this, and also... uh. I I mean, I enjoyed the first Space Jam. I think it's silly, but I don't think it's like an amazing movie. So no. I don't, I just want to get all of this out of the way. All these disclaimers that I, yes, you know, it's a kid's movie, but that doesn't mean it has to be dumb. And that mm. doesn't mean it's it's got a free pass. I I get very sick of people that are like, well, it's just a kid's movie. And it's like, that's just an excuse for it to be a piece of shit. It's like, well, maybe we should give our kids better stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's 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 not an acceptable excuse because we've had even recently very very good family movies and exactly. kids movies and, and animation is always topping itself every year, especially in terms of storytelling. So no, if that if that is your argument for why I'm just saying I someone should not complain about the problems of this film, that that's a big fuck you from me. I hear I hear that a lot when it comes to like again when it comes to stu- like stupid kids movies or stupid comedies it's like well it's just a dumb comedy or it's just a dumb kids movie well like yeah you, that's, you hear it that's all the not time. a reason for it to be a piece of shit right you, this it's it's the excuse that's always used whenever any kind of populist thing is scrutinized um and here's the thing that doesn't mean you can't just because I uh uh I I've been watching, um, I watch Mike Brown, who's been on the show. Uh, he's like rebooted his um, Gotta Love Them movies show on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he says this all the time, like, just because something's bad doesn't mean you have to hate it. Right. But but I do agree with him that like, we can at least acknowledge that it's bad. I'm going to still love it, but it's bad. I'm going to start. I mean, this will just become like a hate vortex. I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to start with why I think that space jam 1996 is still a better movie. Despite the fact that it is also a bad movie. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So we were exactly the right age when that movie came out to totally buy into everything about it. You know, basketball, huge, Michael Jordan, 
He was the biggest Biggest, star in the world. Biggest star in the world. Biggest athlete in the world. Yes. Nobody saw those, like, unfortunate YouTube clips of him being a D-bag to old ladies or whatever. (laughs) Like, nobody knew that he was actually kind of not very pleasant in real life at that time. Um and uh, the original, the original Space Jam, like the whole idea of like Looney Tunes and Michael Jordan, started at uh, because of a successful ad campaign with Nike that put the characters together, and then that eventually was like, that. "Hey, let's make a whole fucking movie about this." And you know, I could I could go into great detail of why the original Space Jam was like the weirdest film ever made. Um, but and but here's the thing: it it is weird, and I think that is. And it is very like of the time. It is. Yes. It is. Uh, and I think that's why, particularly our generation, does have this this nostalgic fondness for it because it's like, it's like even as a kid, you're kind of like, what is this movie? <laughs> right. It, it, I mean, Looney Tunes at that time in the mid '90s was not like the biggest thing going on. You know, like no, people but they, knew they still had some relevance. It was like you know they were still like they still got played on Cartoon Network and stuff. It, it yeah. wasn't a, Tiny Toons was kind of like keeping it alive a little bit, um, but for the most part, it was a a low point in the in the popularity of the Looney Tunes as a as a as a entity until Space Jam brought them back in a big way. So here's here's reasons why Space Jam. Version 1.0 is better than version 2.0, despite the fact that they're both bad movies. Um, Space Jam is weird and doesn't really make any sense, and the plot just kind of makes itself up as it goes, but it at least is paced naturally. You can you can kind of breathe with the film, and you can they set things up that pay off later, and there and is the, some like. A- natural progression of like introducing the characters and and getting from the you know first act to the second act to the third act in a way that feels like a movie movie yes yeah and and there is an internal logic to the movie like space jam is weird as it is it has rules it has rules about what tunes can do and and it does it ha it it, it has I would say at a point in internal law, I would say by the time that um, Bill Murray like walks on court, we're throwing most of those rules away. No, man, he goes <laughs> to the fucking golf hole. It sure. makes sense. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, even like in the middle of the movie where for some reason Bugs Bunny and I forget who, maybe Daffy, uh, go to Michael Jordan's house to find his shorts and there's a whole set piece with them like fighting uh, yeah. the dog to get basketball shorts. I wanted to rewatch the original Space Jam before we recorded this, but I just I haven't had time. I mean, I, I've seen I'd seen it so many times, I pretty much have it memorized. But yes, I I think like even though that scene is like you know dumb, stupid uh, filler um, to pad out a 90 minute movie, the way that it at least that set piece internally makes sense and is paced naturally and sort of pays off in its own way. There's an arc to that set piece. In this film, uh, Space Jam, uh, A New Legacy, it just kind of, I mean, the first act, it takes way too long to build up LeBron James and his problem two, with his kid. and like This take, movie's two fucking hours long. Right, it's a half hour longer than the original Space Jam, and you feel it. 
and the and like describing the video game and why it's not working and him wanting to go to video game camp instead of basketball camp and this glitch and like how that uh, is relevant to the algorithm at Warner Brothers and how they're going to integrate the video game into the it's like this whole uh, shoots and ladders plot mechanics to, to just as an excuse for them once they get sucked into this computer for them to just ready player one all over the place and bounce into all of these different IPs and visit them as just a means of reference as humor, a reference as joke. And it just does that for about 25, 30 minutes of just reference, 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 meme, 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 meme. And I'd actually say by the time we get to the basketball game, which feels relatively short to the whole piece, um, I'm, I'm totally checked out and exhausted and i feel like the the looney tunes as characters okay are just incidental to all of this like it, it could be fucking anybody on that basketball court they could have grabbed you know hermione granger and pennywise and you know fucking the nun from ken russell's the devils or whatever and put them on that court and it would have meant just as much or just as little as so, having the looney tunes there that is i have a lot of complaints about this movie a lot of criticisms about this movie and you just basically said it without saying it this movie is not interested in being a looney tunes movie at all no at all it's barely interested in being a movie there yeah there's no there is nothing about the tune world there's nothing about uh bugs bunny there's nothing about these characters that make them special or a part of the story at all. Mm-hmm. They're just there. And by the time we get to the basketball game, I so don't care about anything that's happening that I'm spending way more time looking at all the weird fucking Easter eggs in the crowd, which is what they wanted us to do for right. some goddamn reason, which is like, it's a movie that is literally spends a half hour making you go, ooh, look at the background of this movie. Mm-hmm. What or, the fuck is that? Or they'll stop, you know, whatever development is going on, dead in its tracks to just, like, put Lola Bunny in the world of Wonder Woman. Just to say, hey, that was a successful movie we did a couple years ago. I mean, not even to get into the 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 pandering girl powerness of it. Like, and, and here's the thing. I'm, I am a feminist. I believe in that, but it's pandering. It's not like, well done. It's just like, look, she's a girl. So I, yeah, it's, there's no, there's no reason for Lola bunny to be there. I mean, I, it's there's just, no reason for Yosemite Sam to be in Casablanca. I didn't no. even, it was so beyond intention that I didn't even think of it in any other terms than them literally just like the whole movie is just them saying, these are things we own. So we're going to use them in the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, just, uh, and it, if there's like a meta commentary kind of going on here, which almost just makes the whole thing worse, where when LeBron James is in the real world and they're pitching this idea to him of like using his likeness and all of these different properties. And he goes, no, that's really dumb. This is awful. Why would I want to do that? And then they proceed to do exactly that for the next hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, exactly. This movie sucks. 
There's exactly one good joke in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, I, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and it's because it's the only time where the movie actually takes itself to to pace a little bit and to set up a joke. Yeah, and pay it, it off. It is the only yeah. moment where they have any kind of build to mm. anything. A natural reveal as opposed to just tossing stuff. some it's reference just in there. stuff. Yeah. It's just stuff over and over and over again. It's just visual and, stimulus. And as as a piece of animation, it's not yeah. even really visually engaging because it's the, everything on the frame is always so busy that you can't focus on anything. It just feels like you're trying to play a video game on your phone, but there's a pop-up ad every five seconds. It, yeah, it, that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like pop-up ads at the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a fun, ironic way, in a... In, in a, a weird, generally frustrating just, way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if we're talking about... Again, if we're... I'm going back a little bit to compare it to the first one. Okay. Because um, you're right. Like, at least the first one is is a movie. At least it's trying to tell a story as weird as the story is yeah as much as people might not like that story or whatever and as cravenly commercial as that one was at the time yeah it, it is but uh but at least it is trying to to bury that in a story mm-hmm. uh you know let's talk about at least the fundamentals of it whereas back in 1994 96 whatever um 96 they were able to integrate Michael Jordan into this cartoon world in a way that was fun and charming, you know, much like Roger Rabbit or whatever. Mm -hmm. We have real person interacting with cartoon. I'm always going to like that. Yeah. And that was sort of a, a novelty at the time. They, I mean, people had done it, Yeah, but it was kind of hard to pull off and you didn't see it as often. And it was, yeah, maybe a little easier uh, in 96 than it would have been when Mary Poppins came out, but... Right, or even but, Roger Rabbit. But regardless, that, like, that's a cool... It's cool to watch. It looks interesting. Yeah. There's... Visually, it's like, oh, this is a guy interacting with cartoon characters, and the cartoon characters are tunes as as beings. Like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll play into that. There, There is something to being a cartoon, like... Bugs Bunny isn't a rabbit. He is a cartoon rabbit. That's very, you know. Whereas in this, even when they shove LeBron into the cartoon world, they make him into this cartoon. And it's, it feels lazily animated. It it just feels like there's no charm. There's no, there's no meaning behind it. This sequence is so, it's literally empty. They don't even have the cartoons there. Right. Uh, And we don't even have the fun of LeBron James As interacting with, with these cartoon characters. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was such a weird choice. And the only thing that I can such think of... Such a weird choice. ...is that they couldn't get him on set as much as they wanted. So they had to do a bunch of stuff with just him, you know, recording voiceover. And then use the real him as little as possible. But there's like a... But then... Yeah, when I think it's going where I'm going. Yeah, when it gets to him in the basketball when game. When he gets turned in yeah, the basketball game, the the what should be the meat, the juice of a Space Jam movie. Right. Uh he transforms into real life and then they turn the tunes into these CGI nightmares, three-dimensional the, versions yeah, of the, themselves, which for no reason. For no reason. It's just other than to say this is the third act, so we're doing this now. And and yeah, there's like this like this 
this uh, like throwaway line about how they needed an update, but they don't look better. And by turning them into these 3D mm-hmm. things that that a lot you know a lot of cartoons when they get a movie adaptation they do this 3D animation. In this context, it to me specifically robs them of their tuneness. Right now they exist in this 3D space, and it's like, well, what's fun about this? We see actors interacting with CGI all the time, kitty stuff all the time. There's yeah. there's no that again. We are robbed of the charm of a basketball player interacting with cartoons. They don't feel like cartoons. They feel like these weird 3D, and and they can't exist in that tune space because well now they're not really cartoons anymore. They're right. These, and the so, opposition team that they're fighting, fi- or playing against, rather, <sighs> uh, is no longer the Monstars and Moron Mountain. All that stuff is not in this movie um, and barely ever addressed. Uh, but instead is is a team of, I guess, uh, popular-ish basketball players that exist nowadays. I don't know. Okay, um, here's, here's the thing. But in the, turned first, into, in the first one, in Space Jam 1, you know... They're basketball players. You yes. know that they are basketball players that get their talent stolen. It right. is a huge plot point. It Even if you are not familiar with those basketball players, which many audience members nowadays probably wouldn't be, you understand the context. Like, right. oh, these are contemporaries of Michael Jordan. They're stealing their abilities so that they can compete in this basketball. It's a whole B-plot. Yeah. Like that's in that this, they keep going back to that about them like trying to play and not and being able to. There's yeah. like je- like that's what there's I mean. Jokes like, out of that. There's a there's a sophistication to the original Space Jam, which sounds ridiculous to say, but I mean compared to Space Jam a new legacy, it's fucking Chinatown. Like <laughs> it, it, it's like it feels like an actual movie because there is some amount of like structure and, and rigor and, to the screenwriting. And, yeah. <laughs> and and this is literally so these these goon squad is just they just pop, they come out of nowhere. There's no build up to it. They're like and now there's these characters. They look like nothing. They look like CGI video game monsters. characters. They could have yeah. come out of like World World of Warcraft or something. And then when you have the Toon Squad also become CGI. Usually you can't really make the distinction between them and the and the goon squad and it doesn't matter and Porky Pig is rapping and the grandma is doing Matrix jokes 20 years too late and it's just a nightmare. I have not seen a movie this bad in so long I forgot movies could be this bad. Yeah, this movie is a mess. This movie sucks. It's not good. It's not fun. Yeah. There's one joke. You can see it on YouTube, YouTube or Twitter. Yeah. It's like a 30 second clip. Just watch that and it'll be more you'll yeah. if you watch that you'll be like, "Ooh, I want to see Space Jam." Yeah. A new legacy. You don't even but, have to we don't even have to be specific about it. You could just type in the one funny joke from Space Jam 2 and it'll take you directly there cuz it is I, I guarantee you're actually probably right. <laughs> this movie Um sucks. and then I think the greatest crime of this film Don Cheadle is fucking terrible in this movie. This is a career worst performance for him. There's a lot of bad performances in here, but LeBron gets a pass because he's not really an actor. Um, The comedians, they're just kind of phoning it in, whatever. But Don Cheadle is like the main villain here, and he's Razzie worthy bad. Yeah, I mean, I I can't compare this performance in a a major motion picture to. 
to his performance in the Funnier Die video as Evil Captain, Captain Planet. Planet. Yeah. Uh, Same joke, basically, but he's way more committed to that Funnier Die video than he is to this bullshit. I, I mean, I do agree with you. He's not good. He's he's bad. He's actively he, bad. He makes scenes he's in worse. <laughs> but I will say the movie itself is so bad mm-hmm. that I I wasn't I wasn't ever like, well, Don Cheadle like is the worst part of this or anything. I like never that. thought I'm he like, was the worst part of the movie, but I was hoping that at least when he's on screen, it would be you something. know, so, yeah, something to as a break from the awfulness or just at least movie, a highlight. And it wasn't. It was exactly the opposite of that. This movie is just so cynically made mm-hmm. and no one cared. I, I mean, maybe LeBron cared. You know, I I bet he wanted it to be good. He want you know, I mean, yeah, n- nobody wants it to be a bad movie. But I think that. Every decision about this movie, it was just like, was just coming from the wrong place of let's just put more stuff in and more stuff and more stuff. And they didn't, didn't have a story to hang that on. They didn't have. No, they never came up with one. Yeah. I mean, just. It's like the movie can't decide what the story is. And like I said, the first one is kind of like that too, but at least it's paced in a way that feels like a three act structure. This just feels like. It feels like trying to ingest an entire bag of granulated sugar with nothing to wash it down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the moments, I guess, yeah. It just sucks. It's a this is an movie. F. I haven't had to give one of these in a long time. But this is an F. If there's ever yeah. been an F, this is an F. I, I agree with you. This is an F for me, too. I did not. I almost was thinking D minus, but I'm like, I, I don't know wh- why. I don't know why. There's nothing to really redeem. There's nothing to bring it up that much. They don't even have the Space Jam song or some like new version of the Space Jam song. Right. Like, or any of the songs. Like there's, there. this movie has none of the charm or appeal of the first Or one. atmosphere and or it, world building or anything. And and if people are like, well, the, the first one wasn't a good movie either. Yeah. I'm not making that argument. Exactly. This one's worse. This one's bad. The original Space Jam was bad in the way that, like, Flubber was bad. This is bad in a way that it's an affront to cinema itself. This is bad in a way that it's it's a front to your senses. It's not... Yeah. It's it's not enjoy... There's nothing to hang on to here. It's just colors and noise. Yeah. Yep. And it is very loud and noisy of a movie. Um, So that's that. Yeah, let's move on to the streaming homework. As Cassidy said, he wanted an adult movie made for adults. Uh, so why don't you set up killing the killing of a sacred deer, which uh, we watched on, I believe, Netflix. Yes, and I, I don't know if we said before, but you can, if you, for some reason, after our review, do want to watch Space Jam, A New Legacy, you can watch it on HBO Max. It's also in theaters. Yeah, um, I recommend watching it. For free while you can. I, I don't recommend um, watching it at all. Don't do either. <laughs> um, let me let me pull that up. I really mean, fast. people are gonna watch it. People people already know. have. It's done really well. It already bound uh, took uh, Black Widow out of the number one spot and blah blah blah. Oh my blah. god. Yeah. Okay. So the Killing of the Sacred Deer was released in 2017 under A24. Uh, it's written and directed by uh, the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, who also did. Dogtooth and the Lobster and uh, the Favorite not too long ago. 
Um, and it stars Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. They play a married couple. Uh, Colin Farrell is a cardiologist, uh, surgeon. And, uh, we learn early on that he had, uh, been involved in a heart surgery that did not go well and where he lost a patient. And over the years since that time, he's sort of built this relationship with the child of the person who died on his table, uh, the 16 year old named Martin played by Barry Cogan and the nature of their relationship, uh, Colin Farrell and Barry Cogan's relationship through the film is always a little shady. We never know a hundred percent, like how the appropriateness of this relationship. Um, we see them meeting sort of in secret a lot of the time and like restaurants and at the hospital where he works. Um, but we do know that, uh, Barry Koenig's character is starting to insinuate himself more and more into Colin Farrell's family situation. And what we sort of seem to gather as the film goes is that um, he wants to sort of cling on to Colin Farrell as, as a new father figure of sorts. And there is an element, there's an element of sort of, as there is in a lot of Yorgos movies, there's an, element of absurdism um, or a disconnect from reality that sort of enters into the situation in which uh, Colin Farrell feels compelled to choose between one of the members of his family, his two children or his wife. I I feel like you just gotta, you just gotta, you can't really dance around the premise about halfway through. Martin reveals that uh, Colin Farrell's character uh, has to kill one of the members of his family or they will all die. That's that's the basic premise is like this yes. sort of philosophical argument. You know, what would you do if you have to kill one of your family? Right. Uh, but yeah, so in this act of revenge, uh, he has made it. And they're never really clear on, on how he's done this. Um, but he has made it to where... Um, everyone in the family will die unless Colin Farrell picks one to kill. Uh, yeah, because- and there, there seems to be um, sort of this psychic link to it or something that has to do with the character of Martin, the 16-year-old boy, um, who is also now sort of building a closer relationship with their, with their daughter who's entering teenagehood and, uh, you know, their son who kind of looks up to him a little bit. Um, and it's... It, it's kind of a combination of sort of a surrealist horror film and a domestic thriller. Um, and I actually thought it was, there's, there's some clever casting going on here because his single mother, we get a cameo from Alicia Silverstone, who used to be in these kinds of movies like, uh, The Crush or, um, yeah. The Babysitter back like pre clueless days. Um, these kind of like, uh, poison ivy ripoffs. Um, and there's a similar kind of feel when we talked about this a little bit, I think when we talked about the guest, there's a similar kind of feel, uh, going on here, a genre, um, approach with the, the, the sort of this idea of like this, this person you let into your life, um, sort of making it harder and harder, uh, to, uh, coexist with yeah, your, yeah. Uh, 
you know, they're, they're, you know, you let this presence into your family and then it be, you know, quickly becomes a threat to this, like, to your, this, like, domestic ideal. Yeah, this, like, suburban ideal. Yeah. Um, I liked the premise of this movie. I liked the look. I liked the basic vibe of it. Oh. What I could not handle was the flatter than flat acting, which is, uh, it is a, a choice. Yes. It is a, a definitely an aesthetic choice that I fucking hated. <laughs> uh, everything is so bland and matter of the matter of fact that I was like, oh, okay, well, these aren't real people and I cannot be like, I couldn't get invested. I just didn't care. I was like, it, it's, the delivery is a little too absurd for me to really get Im- invested in the stakes. I was, I don't it just never felt real enough for me, um, which bummed me out because, like I said, I liked everything else that was going on, uh-huh. but there was just this disconnect between me and any of the characters that I, I like, I wanted to be more into it, and I just... There's there's a moment uh, where Colin Farrell goes to Martin's house and starts slamming on the door and freaking like threatening. Out. Yeah, and it's like the only time in the whole movie that anyone shows any kind of elevated emotion. And I was I was hoping that that at that point the movie was kind of shifting, um, but it didn't. I, I don't know. I I wasn't a huge fan of this one. I kind of love this movie. Um, and it might to date be my favorite of, uh, of Yorgos Lanthimos' movies. Um, it is a choice. And, and I, I kind of got by the first 20 minutes that there, that this is a stylistic approach that he's coming at this from because everybody sort of behaves at the same level. Um, and, yeah. and everyone's I mean, kind of I... doing their line readings in this super dry, super cold, um, emotionless way and not not only that uh it's everything is very matter of the fact matter of fact so like even the stuff that we think is going to be like a secret uh you know like the relationship and stuff it's laid out just very like well you know you operate on my father you killed him now one of your family is that i'm just i actually uh, actually think that uh barry koenig uh am i getting that name right Barry, I don't, I don't know the pronoun- yeah, I don't uh, know the Kogan, Barry Kogan, um, who I'm not as familiar with. Uh, the whole well, first half of the movie, I thought it was the kid from Ready Player One who also plays Cyclops. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, it was like Ty. the same face, Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan, yeah, um, um, yeah. I I just they have very similar facial features. Yeah, I thought that that style of delivery was the most effective through that character because I thought that he really is super creepy and he's, he's supposed to be, but I think, I think that takes away from his creepiness and his performance. Cause I agree with you. I think if he had been super weird in a normal world, it would have been like, Oh fuck. Like there. And, and I get that you don't want that like right away. Mm -hmm. With this type of character, but because everybody else acts like that, to me, it took that away from that performance and that that character. Uh, because I agree with you, I think I think he made it work. 
but I think the rest of the movie, it, to me, it did. Here's like, why I the, don't think... With the little kid doing the same shit, I'm like, okay, I don't know. Yeah, the the youngest son, uh, uh, Sonny Soljic, um, plays Bob, the youngest kid in this, and I recognize him from the movie Mid-90s. Um, but I think the reason why there is that approach to the performances, and you see this in a lot in, like, Cronenberg movies, the way he directs actors sometimes, depending on what the plot is, um, that this absurdist element that enters in where, for no discernible reason, this kid has the power to kill his entire family psychically, and it's not even as as direct as that. It's not like they ever show him in a room, like, shaking his head, and then you see... Um, it's, he just matter-of-factly tells uh, Colin Farrell's character they're going to lose their ability to walk, they're not going to want to eat until one of them starves, and then they'll start bleeding from the eyes and then they'll die. And it's just laid out like it's this thing that happens and nobody in the movie argues that it's a thing that can happen. Now, yeah. if the movie took place in a real world where everybody behaved like real people, the immediate, you know... Uh, response to that to be, what the fuck are you talking about? That, that's not a thing. You can't do that. How would you do that? And then when it did start happening, yeah. the characters would, they would behave too rationally, I think, for the story to work. The movie's not take, doesn't take place in a rational world. No, I, I get that. I, I get all of that, but I do agree that, like, I didn't, I didn't need to understand why the family was dying. Mm -hmm. All we needed to understand was, this kid was the key to it, and, and you know, there's even a thing where, like, you know, if he dies, uh, it's still going to happen, yeah. right? Um, or at the very know, least, the there's only, some question that it could. It, it's, it's, you know, it's to set up this philosophical, you know, idea of, of like, whoa, shit, what would you do if you have to, you know, it's... Right. It's, it's, it's a but, thought experiment. The entire movie's a thought experiment. All of his but, movies are, are essentially I, sure. playing around in these kinds of waters. But I'm so disconnected from the characters that I don't feel... I don't, I don't feel the thing you're supposed to feel when you have to make that kind of choice, which is, oh, God, any one of these would be the most devastating, you know, right. thing to happen. I was literally like... Okay, just fucking let him die and then kill yourself and then kill the kid. Like, I did not care. Th to me, that was the solution to th the thought experiment is, okay, just kill everybody because nobody matters. Like, mm -hmm. I just, and, and to me, that's a problem. Like, I don't, I don't need the movie to be obsessed with how the kid is going to do the thing. Like, I, I, no, that I, was fine. I don't need like a science fiction, you know, uh, reasoning of why anything's happening or rules or anything. I like, I thought, yeah. I think it's better. It doesn't have that, but I, I think, agree. I, I, think I think what you're fine. looking for in the movie is emotional storytelling. And this isn't that. No, I, I think if I'm you look, if you, is... if you look at his other films and I think the film, this remind there's a, there's a decent amount of dog tooth in this as well, but I think it remind me a lot of the lobster. Which um, I, I haven't seen, and I don't really want to now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I liked The Favorite. I think, the, that, that's and the that's the least like his, his other movies. Um, that's the only of his uh, other movies I've seen. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's probably the least like his other films. But I think in The, in the Lobster, what we get 
is this absurdist element that I think the thing that Yorgos Lanthimos is the most interested in is human behavior and why the not just human behavior well i i mean in in the case of this movie i don't think it's interested in that at all because nobody acts like a human right well not not human behavior in the sense of actually studying the responses of of the human mammal but i think he's interested in the arbitrary nature of human behavior and how Human behavior is is predicated on social construct, and I think okay. in the case sure. of the lobster, that construct that he's he's observing or he's sort of experimenting with is the concept of companionship and relationships, and he sort of turns that into this sort of dark comedy premise. Um, in the case of this, he's he's talking about the nuclear family and. What is what are the social constructs that create bonds in a human family? And and I and I word it exactly like that because I think that's about as interested as he is in in humanity as a whole as as purely biological specimens, not as feeling um internal individuals. He he has absolutely no interest in human in humans as individuals. He's I don't even know if he believes that's, in that's humans fine. as individuals. I think he I think he if I I'm guessing a lot just based upon his films, but based upon these his obsessions, I almost think that he approaches characters as lab rats, and he's ex- performing these little experiments in his these plots that he constructs to see how they behave based upon how he moves something in the maze. And I think that's exactly, that's what I respond to in his films. I, I actually like that cold approach. And I like the, this, this kind of other, this eerie otherworldness that he, that he builds out of it. And, and to see just like, you know, if I do this, what will they do? I, but to me, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel even like that because the, the characters are so detached that it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it honestly just kind of feels like a pompous writer exper- writerly experiment. Like I, I didn't really care about this movie. And again, I thought the premise was interesting. I thought it's shot. Well, I just didn't give a fuck. Shot and, gorgeously. Yeah. And, and, you know, to me, it's like, I literally was just like, okay, I get it. Cool. Like, okay, I have to sit through this for another hour. <laughs> like, I, di- I didn't like it. It was, I don't know. It was, and, and I don't have a problem with absurdism. I don't, I don't even have a problem with anything necessarily that you're saying. But to me, the end result, uh, you know, it wasn't worth a two hour movie. You know, to me, it's, you know, you I think you get more out of those hypothetical, you know, I think you get more out of those late night conversations where you're having asking those hypothetical uh, questions and having to put yourself in that situation than you get out of this movie. I just didn't care for it. I I think it's going to come down to uh, on an individual level, it's going to come down to your ability to respond without emotional connection to the characters. 
And usually I'm that's very important to me. Um, it should be important to you. That's but I but I I don't I I, I think in his movie he you know he's an art filmmaker. He's not making he's not doing emotional storytelling. He's not even necessarily interested in narrative. Um, I mean his narratives exist in order to sort of explore these obsessions he has. But I think his approach to humanity is is very cold and very so observational. It's to the point of almost objectification. I. And here's the thing. I've seen other, other, you know, I've seen, I'm, I'm not even, this is something that almost exists more in the world of theater than it does in cinema. Yeah. But bad theater, <laughs> like, like theater I don't like. Um, uh, I, I mean, yeah. I, in, uh, there was something about it that felt very stagey, but if I went to a play and saw actors, you know, going like, we could have steak for dinner. Like I, I'd be like, okay, I don't want to sit through this. I don't want to sit through this. And that's how I felt about this movie. It was like, uh, okay, did it bother you worse that they were knowingly capable actors that were purposely kind of sheathing their craft? Um, no, not necessarily because that, that keyed me in pretty early on that it was an intentional choice mm-hmm. and not just bad, bad actors. actors. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, casting good actors, that, that makes sense. Again, on every level, I understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. I just don't necessarily like it and I don't want to watch it. Like, I, I feel like at the end, I don't know. How are you supposed to feel at the end? Because I felt nothing. And I feel like that's meant to be, you know, is it supposed to be disturbing? Is it supposed to be? Because I, I feel like this is, like you said, this is, a, a, you know, like absurd horror. But yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I feel like I have seen that kind of thing in ways that I still at least get invested in what's going on. Like, uh, like you haven't seen Twin Peaks The Return. No. Um, there's a lot of this mm. kind of stuff. Like, there's a lot of, it's very different than the original series of Twin Peaks. Yeah. There's a lot of intentional flatness uh, uh but i was captivated i was just enthralled by it you can but, see that but, in other lynch works even if it's i haven't seen that specific thing he doesn't approach his actors in a realistic manner either he's not really interested in that and but same with but david the, cronenberg like in a movie like crash i think he's almost approaching it in a very almost identical way it's like humans are just these weird biological specimens like who cares what they think and feel uh, so what's, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, and I don't even have a, a necessarily a problem with that, like, pure nihilistic approach. I just didn't, it just didn't work for me in this movie. I just didn't care about anything that was happening. I would say watch The Lobster because where in this he's using that tone to create horror tension in the lobster it's more for absurdist comedy so i think yeah, I that you can you might be able to appreciate what that movie's doing it isn't a similar you can definitely tell it's the same guy but <laughs> well i mean and here's the thing i didn't i think i like this movie more though i mean for for me specifically i think this is a this is a uh riskier um leaner agree with you approach to it I, I'll agree with you that it's it's risky and and mean and I I agree with everything you're saying. Mm. I just 
it just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. It just fe- fell short of anything that I, I don't know. I like, I wouldn't recommend this movie to people. They would, I think most people would think this is a bad movie. I think most people would be wrong about that, but, um, yes, I would, I would only suggest it to a very select audience. If it doesn't work as a movie, then it's not a good movie. Like I, I, I don't know. I didn't care for this one. Okay. What do you want to recommend next week? We're going to go a little bit of a different direction. Uh, we're, I have had uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown on my list for a long time now. Um, and a uh, friend of the show, listener Sean, uh, he mentioned it on Twitter recently. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's watch Hell Comes to Frogtown. It's streaming on Shudder. I think it's also uh, on Tubi. Um, double check that. But um, yeah. Starring uh, the the wrestler actor Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm excited. I think it's going to be fun. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> and if anybody has anything to say about any of the things we discussed in this episode or in past episodes, uh, you can go ahead and email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media at Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. You can read my reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movies. And it uh, should take you to that page where the, my review archives are. Um, you can also follow me individually on Twitter at BC Cassidy and on Instagram where I show my record collection. That's all I do there um, at BC Cassidy as well. Uh, be sure to leave us a five-star review and a one-sentence one sentence blurb over at uh, whatever podcast catcher you are listening to us on. So iTunes, Stitcher Radio player.fm we are on pocketcast if you can't find us on pocketcast for some reason we're not searchable but i was able to find our link and send it to someone directly that way so if you want to listen to us on pocketcast if that's your preferred hmm. pocket catcher your pod catcher uh just hit hit us up in the dms on twitter or instagram and i can uh send you that link what about you um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. All right. And are you still doing the Comic Con at home thing? Is that a still a thing? Uh, it'll be it'll be over by the time this airs. So okay. Well, if you want to see, I guess the submissions that were. Yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll post them on on my art account. Um, mm-hmm. the the winners before I mail off the art. Uh, and that'll be it. My mom's attracted to you. She's got a great body. Bye.